0: Open your Bibles to Luke 24, Luke 24, Luke chapter 24. If we had a second day to build on what we talked about today, then what I'm going to talk to you about in the next 30 minutes, 35 minutes, um, would be something that we would spend an entire day doing. Because it is of monumental importance, but must grow on top of the things we talked about today. One of the great weaknesses of evangelical preaching and teaching today is it is highly moralistic and divorced from the gospel so that you can read books that talk about advocating certain kind of parenting techniques that are the same exact things you'd hear from Dr. Phil or Dr. Laura. You'll hear certain kinds of things talked about with regard to personal finances, and it would be the kind of thing that you would find in a secular book at Barnes & Noble, that there is nothing distinctly Christian about it. You will hear uh, preachers, pastors talking to men about dealing with se- sexual temptation, and there's nothing Christian about about how they talk about it, that they would talk about it the same way Dr. Phil would talk about it. That there's nothing distinctly Christian. Uh, 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 On a Monday, I walked into one of my classes and I said to one of my students, Carl, I said, Carl, how was the worship service yesterday? Great. So what did the pastor preach about? He preached on money. I said, great. Did he say anything about money that was any different than you'd hear in a book at Barnes & Noble? No, not really. So does the Bible have some things to say about money? Yes, yes, but it's rooted in the gospel. So that we talk about one who though rich made himself poor, that he might make others rich. You want to talk about avoiding sexual temptation? Then okay, we talk about things that we need to do to avoid sexual temptation, but what's the reason for doing that? 1 Corinthians 6, he says, glorify God with your body because you've been bought with a price. You see, you ground it in the gospel, like like the Bible writers do, so that whenever you find moral imperatives, commands to certain kind of behaviors, they are always grounded in what God has first done for us in the gospel. Moral imperatives grow out of redemptive indicatives. So you think of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. The big ten, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Exodus 20. You know how Exodus 20 begins? I'm the Lord God who delivered you out of Egypt. Now, number one. you got ten commands, ethical demands, moral imperatives that grow out of what God has first done to save us. And when you divorce the ethical demands from the gospel that, that, that is the basis for those demands, you become a moralist and your teaching and preaching is not Christian. If you can say something that they would say down at the Mormon temple, that they would say at the Jewish synagogue or the Islamic mosque, you have not preached or taught Christianly, even if you've taught from the Bible. I want to show you something. Luke 24, my favorite scene in all of biblical history. That very day, verse 13, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said, that's one of the weird things about the glorified body of Jesus. People could not recognize him who he is until he willed to reveal himself to them. Remember Mary? Same thing with these guys here. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? This conversation is hilarious. He's talking to the resurrected Christ. And he said to them, I love this, how Jesus plays with them a little bit. What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Now watch. Verse 25. And Jesus said to them. "O foolish ones and slow of heart. You are foolish he says. And you're thick headed. But now watch. He doesn't. Chastise them for not knowing something they could not have known, but for not knowing something they should have known. (laughs) Why are you foolish and slow of heart? Because you've not believed all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now watch. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the Bible is about me. Proverbs, Malachi, Zephaniah. Hmm. Look at verse 44. Later, Jesus appears to all the disciples. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds. That's what we need, you see, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written. Stop right there. Who's speaking? The resurrected Christ. This is the resurrected Christ's inspired interpretation of the Old Testament. According to Jesus. Thus it is written. That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. You know what he's saying? All the Old Testament was about me. All the Old Testament was about me. And if, we, and if we had an hour, hour and a half, what I would do was I would go through dozens of Old Testament passages that the apostles used to point to Jesus Christ. And then what we would need to say is, okay, since the Old Testament points us to Jesus Christ, how do we do that? Do we have to resort to allegory? Here's a piece of wood. Well, that's prefigurative of the cross. Here's Rahab's scarlet cord. It's red. The blood of Jesus is red, therefore it's anticipating the death of Christ. Is that what we have to do, really? Let me give you a couple of examples. Okay? What's the most common scripture? Sir, are we still on this thing? <laughs> <laughs> what's the most what's what's the most frequently cited scripture at funerals? Psalm twenty three. Psalm twenty three. The irony in it is that's not a song about dying, it's a psalm about living, Psalm 23. But nevertheless, it's used, Psalm 23, Psalm 23. So you're going to teach through that psalm and all that it tells us about the Lord being our shepherd and our host and all kinds of wonderful things. He ends by saying, and I'm going to keep coming back to the temple all the days of my... It's not about dying, it's about living, Psalm 23. But we ask ourselves, so, this shepherd, who is he? The Lord is our shepherd. Who who is he? We've seen all the things that describe him, but who is he? I want to read my Bible backward and forward. And so what I discover is. You're not going to see this. We have got to get a bigger board. Um, Genesis. 48 and 49. For the first time. Jacob says. Yahweh has been my shepherd my whole life. Hmm. This is the. This is the God who has taken care of. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's called the shepherd when we get to Exodus, the shepherd who led Israel out of Egyptian bondage to the promised land. We then, several occasions in the book of Psalms, read that Yahweh is our shepherd, not just in Psalm 23. Turn to Micah. Turn to Micah. I realize it's dangerous asking you to do that because your pages may be stuck together. Okay? Turn to Micah chapter 5, a passage that you read every Christmas. Watch now. Yahweh has been my shepherd, Yahweh has been our shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. We get to Micah chapter five. Now remember, you're 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 teaching, preaching, whatever on Psalm twenty-three. Okay, you get to Micah chapter five, <coughs> and we read in verse two. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth one for me who is to be ruler in Israel. Stop right there. What's the significance that he comes from Bethlehem Ephrathah in Judah? What king has come from that town? This is someone whose antecedent is David. He will be a ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You know what it's saying? This person will be Davidic and this person will be eternal, divine. Verse 3 has something saying. say in verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh. Micah 5 says there's a shepherd coming who will be Davidic and divine. We get to Ezekiel 34. Don't go there, okay? Guys, we're just pressed for time. Let me just tell you the story. In Ezekiel 34, God is nailing the shepherds of Israel. He is really, really ticked off because they've abused their pastoral privileges For the sake of personal advancement. And God says. Amazing. Amazing. Like 10 or 15 times. God says. I'm going to come and shepherd my people. I'm going to be their shepherd. I'm going to lead them beside streams of water. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to come. I'm going to be their shepherd. Over and over God says. I'm going to come. And then out of nowhere. It says. David will come and be their shepherd. David. David's been dead for hundreds of years. A shepherd is going to come who is divine and Davidic. Ezekiel 34. And then what does Jesus say in John 10? I am, hear overtones? I am the good shepherd. In 1 Peter 5, he is, and two, he is called the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. In Hebrews chapter 13, he is called the great shepherd. So we have him in John 10. We have him in 1 Peter 2 and 5. We see him finally in Revelation chapter 7, where the one who is the lamb will shepherd them and lead them to streams of living water. So we say, who is this Lord who is our shepherd? And if you don't make a connection to Jesus Christ, you've not preached that section Christianly because he's the fulfillment of everything that's said there. No allegory. Just letting the Bible interpret itself, reading it backward and forward. And seeing that when the concept of shepherd is introduced, it's heading right there to the one who's the ultimate shepherd. He's the one who's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says, one's going to come after me, a prophet. He's going to have God's words in his mouth. You need to listen to everything he says. Guess what? Peter in Acts chapter 3 quotes Deuteronomy 18 and says, was Jesus. The book of Hebrews says that he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament priests. We're told in the very first Christian sermon that he is the new Davidic king who is ruling and reigning. He's the fulfillment of every prophet, priest, and king. This is not allegorizing, friends. This is reading the Bible following its progress, following its forward movement. You see? Does that make sense to you? You don't need a commentary. All you need is a concordance. Let the Bible tell itself, you see. But I can't preach Psalm 23 the way a rabbi would do. No, because I have the New Testament that now teaches me how to interpret the Old Testament. I now read the Old Testament wearing New Testament glasses. So if I preach from an Old Testament passage and a rabbi would sit and listen to me and say, I agree with everything he ever said that I missed the boat because Jesus says all of it was pointing to me. Does that make sense to you? You see what I'm saying? So, uh, Genesis 39. Turn there. Genesis 39. Isn't this fun? I love this. That's where Goldsworthy's book will change your life. According to plan. And what will happen, friends, is if you get convinced that the Bible truly is a Christian book, then when you sit under preaching that is all moralistic and not Christian, you'll say, I don't want any more of that ever again. No more six steps to being a happy wife. Three steps to ending sibling rivalry in your family. Four steps to managing your money well. All of that will go down the toilet. I don't want that anymore. That's not what the Bible's intended to do. Can you find one passage in the Bible where it says, here are three steps to anything? So why do we do that? You see, why why do we do that? Genesis 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. Pay attention to the repeated phrases. They're not accidental. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. What's the big theme of that opening paragraph? The presence and blessing of the Lord. The Lord was with Joseph. And right now we have a wonderful health and wealth sermon to preach. The Lord is with him, prospered. Isn't that great? That's what the Lord always does when He's with you. He makes you prosper. Right? Has that been your experience? Not mine. Then you got the middle paragraph. And you know the scene, don't you? Potiphar's wife makes her moves on Joseph. Joseph refuses. And there is a lot there that we can teach and preach about sexual temptation, and we'd be stupid not to. But you know how it ends. Kind of rattles the health and wealth gospel at this point, because Joseph obeys. And God always rewards obedience. If you say no to sin, God will always take care of you. This totally shatters that kind of nonsense, verse twenty and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The opening paragraph, the closing paragraph, both teach the same things. The presence and blessing of God. The presence and blessing of God. The middle paragraph... The reality and wickedness of sin. Why is it shaped that way? It's shaped that way to tell you how to interpret the middle paragraph of your lives. That despite the reality and wickedness of sin and all that may befall you as a result of living in a fallen world with sinful people, the Lord is always with you that nothing happens outside of the boundaries of God's sovereign control in your life. You finish chapter 39, however, and you're saying, what kind of the Lord being with Joseph is that? He keeps his pants on, and he suffers because of it. Christianity means that whenever you obey, everything always goes great. Right? What kind of the Lord being with Joseph is that? And then we say, well... Joseph is thrown into prison. Because of that, he interprets the chief baker's dream. Because he interprets the chief baker's dream, cupbearer's dream, he ends up interpreting the Pharaoh's dream. Because he interprets Pharaoh's dream, Egypt is saved from starvation. Because Egypt is saved from starvation, that little family of about 70 people up in Judah are saved from starvation. And because they are saved from starvation, the Messianic line continues. And because the Messianic line continues, Jesus Christ has come to us. Because Joseph kept his pants on. I just preached Christ, didn't I? Anything like an allegory? I just ask myself, where does the little story fit in the telling of the big story? You see? And if I don't get to Christ, then I'm not faithful to what he said the Old Testament does. It all points to me. One more illustration. We could do tons of these. Since we began in Nehemiah, let's finish. You don't don't need to turn there. I'll tell you the story. First seven chapters, walls built. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. The people are renewed. Reformation occurs. In chapter 10 they pledged themselves to renewed obedience in three areas that had characterized their disobedience. And they signed their names on a covenant beginning with Nehemiah. We're going to obey in the three areas where we've just repeatedly disobeyed God. Number one, uh, we're not going to let our believing children marry unbelievers. Number two... We're going to honor the Sabbath. Because in the old covenant, Sabbath is the covenant sign. Three, we're going to bring our tithes to the place of worship so that the people who lead us in worship can be provided for and thus Yahweh properly worshipped. They sign their names. Chapter 10. Beautiful ceremony. Chapter 12. Massive worship service. An incredible scene. Is that 12, 13, something like that? Nehemiah goes back to Susa. Goes back. Goes back to his old job. Sometime later, we're not told. Shows up again. Here we are on the heels of the greatest reformation that has been recorded for us on the pages of the Bible. Nehemiah comes back, and what does he find? That in the very three areas that they had pledged to be obedient... They had violated it all again. They were ignoring the Sabbath. Their children were marrying unbelievers. And the priests and those responsible for temple worship were out in the fields trying to earn a living so that worship in the temple was being ignored. And Nehemiah goes off. Do you realize that that is the chronological end to the Old Testament? Our Old Testament hasn't been put together chronologically. That is where the Old Testament story ends. So you see, the people of Israel fail, God restores. They fail, God restores. They fail, God restores. And we finally get to the greatest expression of reformation and revival in all the Old Testament. Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. The people sign their names on the dotted line. They're committed. We will obey. And by the end of the book, which is the chronological end of the Old Testament, they're all back sinning again. That's where the Old Testament ends. And it ends by saying this. Can anybody keep the law of God? Will anybody ever keep the law of God? Can someone keep the law of God for us? It begs for someone who will be able to keep the law of God. And we open the Bible to Matthew chapter 1. And there he is. Anything like an allegory? No. You just see how the little story contributes to the telling of the big story. And you see that all the Old Testament, in one way or another, is pointing us to Jesus Christ, who proves to be the ultimate Israelite. The embodiment of everything Israel was to be. Because what do we discover right there? Out of Egypt I called my son. And who in the Old Testament is called the son of God? Israel. And now, now Matthew is saying, everything God designed Israel to be is to be found in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate Israel, along with all of those who now belong to him. It's an amazing One more. Remember the book of Ezekiel? What a grim time. Similar to that of Nehemiah. By virtue of the paganism and idolatry of the people, particularly the religious leaders, Ezekiel sees the spirit of God Rise up out of that temple in Jerusalem and leave. The glory of God is departed. And yet, the book of Ezekiel ends by saying the glory of God will return to a temple. The glory of God will return to a temple. Well, the people go into exile, they come back, they rebuild the temple, but no record of the glory of God returning anywhere. And then we come to the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. I'm stealing my thunder for tomorrow. I can't believe I'm doing this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory. of is the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. And then we get to the next chapter and what does Jesus say? Destroy this temple. And I'll raise it up in three days. And John writes, we didn't realize it at the time, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And you know what any Jewish reader of the fourth gospel would say? Ezekiel is fulfilled. The glory of God is returned to a temple. The temple is Jesus Christ and all who are a part of him. That imagery is all through the New Testament. Jesus is the new temple. That's where the glory of God is housed today, in Jesus Christ and in all who are connected with him. John is saying Ezekiel has been fulfilled in Christ. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, in him all the promises of God are yes and amen. All the Bible points us to Jesus. All of it. Just let it tell itself. Okay? God bless you, friends. It's wonderful to be with you. You know what? When I tell that illustration tomorrow, please don't pretend like you know it, okay? All right. Ryan.